You're listening to the First Baptist Church Broken Arrow podcast. To learn more about the church, visit us at fbcba.org. Today's sermon comes from our pastor, Dr. Matt Brooks. Well, good morning, church. If you want, please open your Bibles with me, the book of Acts this morning, Acts chapter 12. Acts chapter 12, as we conclude a series, we've been in several weeks through Acts chapters 10 and 12, called Unstoppable, Advancing the Gospel, One Opportunity at a Time. I want to remind you that our content team has put together a devotional that walks right alongside the sermon. You can text the word sermon to 45776 if you would like to continue to follow Christ, to get deeper in his word this week through this text. Well, church, my name is Matt Brooks, the senior pastor here, First Baptist Church, Broken Arrow, just praising the Lord for an incredible week of camp, praising the Lord for right around 150 total campers and adults that went to Roach, Missouri to hang out in a counter cove, praising the Lord for around 10 spiritual decisions this week. So those are salvations, baptisms, uh, taking that next step into missions and ministry. Can we just give the Lord a round of applause for salvation, for blessing this next generation? What a wonderful way to take off this summer and to kick off what the Lord's doing. What also covet your prayers in that I will this time tomorrow be in Israel with about 35 of our church members. So be praying for that trip, just an incredible, lifelong, memorable experience. We're going to be going to Israel as a church every two to three years. We're going to contextualize this every time. So sometimes we'll go to Egypt and Israel. We'll go to Jordan and Israel. We'll combine themes from the Old Testament and New Testament. And so that's something that the Lord has placed on your heart. Hey, just every two or three years. This is something that we will go to together and celebrate the goodness of the Lord. From April 1860 to October 1861, the Pony Express was the fastest way to get a message from the east to the west. In fact, they were twice as fast as any of their competitors. In fact, they could get a message from St. Joseph, Missouri to San Francisco, California in 10 days. They did this because the riders would ride 75 to 100 miles a day and they would change horses every 10 to 15 miles. They would brave inclement weather, attacks from bandits and Indians and snakes and everything else, all for about $100 a month. And they would do this because of the motto of this company was to get the mail through no matter the obstacle. In fact, the only thing that could eclipse the greatness and the grandeur of these legendary riders was the marketing firm that used to attract them. In fact, this marketing poster is arguably the most popular marketing poster of all time. The motto, to get the mail through no matter the obstacle. Urgently needed, this poster said. Young, skinny, wiry fellers, not over the age of 18, must be an expert rider. Marksmen and orphans preferred. Danger assured. Must be willing to risk life daily. But the mail must go through. When we conclude this series in Acts chapter 12, that is the key theme of this point. Obstacles will come. Challenges will be many. But the word of God... The gospel must go through. Have you ever noticed in your life that opposition is inevitable anything great? I mean, often even in the Bible, gospel advancement doesn't come without conflict or hostility. And that is why in Acts chapter 12, you see this intertwinedness of tragedy and persecution. 
that with God's great purposes often comes God's great challenges and obstacles. So that is why in Acts chapter 12, we're going to study today these first five verses. James, an apostle, is going to die. He's going to be killed because of his faith. That is why you're going to see in verses 6 through 19, Peter, the great disciple, the one who literally would walk on water with Christ, literally the one who would see the manifestation of the Holy Spirit come upon him at Pentecost and 25,000 people, now 10 years later in Acts 12, have followed Christ, will be seized, imprisoned, soon to be beheaded, if not, if the Lord does not intervene. You will see an enemy. You will see one who will rise against himself, a king who will claim to be a God, who God will judge in verses 20 through 23. All So the movement of the word of God, so the power of the gospel will go forward in verses 24 and 25. We will leave here today affirming that nothing can stop God's divine plan and purpose for your life. Not famine, not persecution, not martyrdom, not selfish political rulers, not municipalities or guards. No man is any match for our God. May the one thing we get before we walk out and do life May we testify that our opposition is great, but God is greater. I'm going to show you this from Acts chapter 12. Why don't we give our hearts this morning to verses 1 through 24. Why don't you look at verse 1, and let me introduce the context of this chapter. Now about that time, Herod the king laid violent hands on some who belonged to the church. And he killed James, the brother of John, with the sword. And when he saw that it pleased the Jews, he proceeded to arrest Peter also, for this was during the days of unleavened bread. And when he had seized him, he put him in prison, delivering him over to four squads of soldiers to guard him, intending after the Passover to bring him out to the people. So Peter was kept in prison, but earnest prayer for him was made to God by the church. And let's stop right there. Opposition is great, But God is greater. Luke details to us the demonic actions of a real evil king by the name of Herod. Now, there are four different Herods mentioned in the New Testament. Remember in Matthew chapter 2, verse 16, when Herod the Great sought to kill the baby Jesus, in doing so, slaughtered countless infants at the time of the birth of Christ. This was Herod the Great's grandson in Acts chapter 12. There was also Herod Antipas who beheaded John the Baptist in Matthew chapter 14, verses 1 through 2. All John did was stand for truth. All John did was proclaim the truth. It would cost him his life. This, in Acts chapter 12, is not Herod the Great or Herod Antipas. This is rather Herod Agrippa. This was a man who was educated in Rome. He was brought to Rome by the age of four because his father was murdered. You see, this man came from a godless political family. His friends and upbringing were Claudius and Caligula, emperors that were renowned for killing Christians. No wonder this man, not because he opposed Christianity, but because he desired political favor, killed James, the brother of John, with the sword in verse 2. Now Herod executed James, who was not the author of the epistle of James, but is John's brother, a son of Zebedee. It would be James who was the first of 11 apostles who would be martyred. These men would be seized. These men would be killed 
for living for Jesus Christ. The cost to follow Christ would cost these men everything. And so it is at this appropriate time where the gospel is spreading in this region, the persecution comes. Herod presumably follows a Roman form of execution. He beheads James. And he is doing this as a means to gain political favor. He's a politician in every way. This is unjust in every sense. And seeing in verse 3 the appeasement of Jewish leaders, now he seizes Peter. He imprisons Peter. And when he saw that it pleased the Jews, in verse 3, he proceeded to arrest Peter also, for this was during the days of unleavened bread. Just as Jesus was arrested during the Feast of Unleavened Bread, so was Peter. This is the third time in the book of Acts that Peter has been arrested. Without question. Now, 10 years removed from Pentecost, Peter is growing in his understanding of the gospel. He's growing in his ability to display the gospel. He's apparently also growing in his expertise of making license plates and those sorts of things. Things are awful. Nothing seems to be going according to plan. And yet God's at work, even in the small things. You see, Peter was seized during the Paschal Feast. And according to Jewish tradition, it was illegal to execute anyone during this feast. So Herod had to wait until the completion of this feast. And so Herod, in doing so in verse 4, he assigns a maximum security detail. He gives four squads of four soldiers who would rotate every three hours. Peter would have had one leg chained to one soldier, another leg chained to another soldier, and two soldiers guarding the outer gate. The point that Luke is making in verse 4 is that it is impossible for Peter to escape. His upcoming execution is awaiting There is no hope. There is no chance of survival. Opposition often comes with faithfulness. And it's within this context and seeing that the Lord intervenes. You see, we should not be surprised when we have tribulations in this world, troubles in this world. For Jesus says in John 16, verse 33, the word, take heart, for he is overcome the world. And so resiliently, God's people, upon hearing the devastating news of James' execution, of Peter's imprisonment, all they could do was pray. And the Bible says in verse 5 that they with earnest prayed for him to the Lord. They took seriously the admonition of James in James 5, 16, for the fervent prayers of a righteous man availeth much. They as a way of life within this news. They conveyed an intensity of service. They were stretched out before the Lord, straining their hearts and their minds to continually petition him. In fact, this word earnest here in verse 5 is of the same word used of Jesus in Luke chapter 22, verse 44, in the Garden of Gethsemane, where Jesus, the night before he would give his life, was earnestly praying before the Father was petitioning that his will be done. So much so that he began to perspire blood, that earnest and intensity is matched right here by God's people. See, this is how we're to respond to conflict. 
This is our word to respond to troubles and hostilities and things that are unexpected in our life where Herod chose a sword. God's people chose to pray. The faithful must be prayerful. Are we? I mean, when our life begins to be full of challenges, does it drive us to our knees? It is tragic that even in my own life sometimes, it is in these calamities, it is in these prison seasons of life that then we pray. The prayer is often the last resort as opposed to the first response. And here God's people with this news, all they could do was pray. All they could do was sovereignly trust the Lord. May we be reminded of the power of prayer and the privilege of prayer in our life. In fact, this story reminds me of the great missionary John G. Patton, who was called specifically as a trailblazing missionary to the South Pacific, specifically the islands of the New Hebrides. And him and his wife were there, and they didn't know the language. They didn't know the culture. All they knew is that God had called them to this specific place at this specific time. And they built a mission there. And they began to integrate with the culture and meet the people. And hostility was everywhere. And so one night, John and his wife were praying, and they began to see a party of natives begin to surround their camp. They begin to, according to tradition, realize that this was a war party that was coming. That these natives were there not to greet John and his wife, but to kill them. And so as they did their war dance all night long, party after party began to gather. John and his wife began to pray. Because they knew these natives were hostile. They knew these natives were cannibals. And all they could do was pray. They had no weapons. They had no means to defend themselves. And they prayed all night. Remarkably, they woke in the morning alive. Not only alive, but these natives were no longer encircling their camp. They were completely gone. In fact, they wouldn't come back for a year. So as John and his wife began to once again share the gospel with the natives, they were met with the chief. And he heard this gospel of the great and mighty God who came to save him and his people of their sins came to live inside of them with a life-changing power through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And the chief accepted the Lord Jesus Christ as his Lord and Savior. Upon doing so, he turns to John and says, where is your war party? And the surprised missionary said, I'm sorry, sir? And the chief began to tell him how the night that they encircled their camp, right when they were about to strike, that there were warriors set outside their camp that were as large as the trees. Their swords and spears were as fierce as fire. Immediately, John began to tell him that those were not warriors, that those were angels. And that him and his wife had fallen on their knees before a holy God and asked God's will to be done in their life to protect them but to allow them to display the message of the gospel, this same gospel that this chief accepted. 
Every obstacle is an opportunity for you to display this gospel. That we have a God who desires us to ask in faith, to expect in faith as we continue to live for him and his glory. Things could not have been going any worse in Acts chapter 12. And God is going to use all of these things to display his mightiness in his glory. This opposition is great, but we have a God who is greater. Look at verses 6 through 7. God is sovereignly going to rescue Peter from this tyrant. Now when Herod was about to bring him out that very night, Peter was sleeping between two soldiers bound with two chains and centuries before the door guarding the prison. And behold, the angel of the Lord stood next to him and a light shone in the the cell and he struck Peter on the side to wake him up saying, get up quickly. And the chains fell off of his hands. Let's stop there. The very night that Herod is about to bring Peter to trial. The very night that Herod's about to bring Peter before the people. About to kill Peter. The Lord intervenes. God is never late. God is always on time. But notice Peter's reaction. He's not perplexed. He's he's not overwhelmed. He's not consumed with anxiety or despair. He's not saying, woe is me. He's saying, wow is God. Literally in the midst of this, he knows what's going to happen. He knows what happened to James. He knows who Herod is. No, Peter is asleep between these two soldiers. Peter's not fidgety. He's not nervously awaiting what's next. He is slumbering within the sovereignty of the Lord God in this situation. He's literally living out this assurance that he gives in the future of 1 Peter 5, 7, casting all our anxieties on him because he cares for you. Peter's focus is not on these hypothetical outcomes. It's rather on the assurance of the sovereignty of the one. Peter's focus is on the Lord. Peter's focus is on the assurance that God is in control. That whatever it is, that if Peter lives to an old age, which Jesus promised he would in the gospels, or if God took him right now, it would be in perfect alignment to God's plan. It is assurance and peace that guards Peter. I'll remind you in Luke chapter 8, verses 22 and 25, Peter and the disciples were in a boat with Jesus. And a huge windstorm comes about out of nowhere. And immediately these seasoned fishermen who had been reared on the Sea of Galilee were absolutely terrified. Jesus is sleeping. And they awake our king We're about to die. And the Bible says that Jesus in verse 25 of Luke 8 awakes and rebukes the wind. And it stops. It ceases. And then he turns to these disciples and he says, where is your faith? Where is your confident trust in me? Where is your active belief in me? Where is your faith that I will provide? Where is your faith that I will always be enough? Where is your faith that I will be faithful? No matter the count, no matter the obstacles. Oh, it's this faith that Peter is slumbering in in Acts 12. 
It is this assurance that is guiding Peter's heart and mind. And so despite this outcome, despite this rigged verdict, he has peace within his soul. Do you have this same peace? You see, peace is not the absence of problems, but the presence of Jesus. If you have Jesus, you have his peace. If you have Jesus, you must allow this peace to do what it is intended to do, to guard your heart and your mind. You allow the Lord to be your avenger. You allow the Lord to fight your fights. You allow the Lord to defend you. Your trust is in the Lord. So regardless what happens with family, regardless what happens with news that we're not expecting, but regardless what happens with this economy, regardless what happens with this world around us, it is the peace inside us that guards our hearts and minds. It is the assurance knowing that we have the sovereign king of the universe reigning in our heart that can get us through any situation. So much so that Peter is such in a slumber that literally an angel of the Lord in verse 7 has to ongoingly strike him to wake him up. He's in such a daze. The Bible says in verse 7 that the angel struck Peter on the side to wake him up. Get up quickly. And the chains fell off of his hands. A violent blow is conveyed here by Luke. You ever try to wake someone up like this? Brent and I, we have five children, 13 and under. And man, my, my seven-year-old, just regardless of what's going on, I, I wonder, you know, when the Lord comes back and the trumpet sounds, if he's going to wake up. He's just in a slumber. And so the other day we were hanging out in Kansas City, Kansas, eating some barbecue and watching some baseball. And you wouldn't know, in the Lord's sense of humor, we'd been playing all day Friday and Saturday, and we had a game at 8 o'clock on Sunday morning, which means you got to be at the field at 7 o'clock, which means you got to leave the hotel at 6.30, which means you got to get up at 5.45. And so Brent and I, uh, being the wise parents that we are, we just dressed our 7-year-old in the clothes that he was supposed to wear on Sunday. All you got to do is get up, son. That's all you got to do. And so sure enough, 5.45, we're, we're up, we're around, we're getting around. Tate, wake up. Nope, not going to happen. Six o'clock, Tate, wake up. Not going to happen. About 6.05, you start hearing those grunts. <laughs> wake up. And so Bryn went through the kitchen and got some breakfast for us so we could eat in the room and check out and everything else. There was a piece of bacon on that plate. And so I just grabbed that bacon and started rubbing it right underneath his nose. Tate, wake up. Finally, this boy got up. That's what Peter's doing in Acts 12. He is resting in the Lord. He's asleep. He is dazed and about to be amazed about what God is going to do. The point is, is that it is God who enabled and empowered and directed this entire rescue of Peter. All Peter did was wake up. And God did it all. God can do much with a people who's awake. God can do much through people who say, we're here. We're ready. Use us for your glory. And so here's what God does. God wakes up Peter and doesn't wake up a single soldier. 
In fact, Peter is still so amazed that all of these things are happening, he doesn't even realize that this is not a dream, that this is real in verse 9. God even automatically opens the gates in verse 10. Remember two years ago when these new minivans came out and, you know, you could get your groceries and your luggage and all your ball junk and, you know, you don't even have to open the door anymore. You can kind of kick your foot uh, underneath the little laser and miraculously the trunk just opens. Yeah, they didn't get that from some cool technology. God's been doing that for 2,000 years, all right? It's exactly what God does in verse 10. He opens the gates. And miraculously, Peter goes, no, where do you go? He's the most wanted criminal in Jerusalem. Anyone who associates with him, they're certainly gonna be just like James, beheaded, done. Where do you go? What do you do? Peter goes to church. In fact, look at verse 12. When he realized this, he went to the house of Mary, the mother of John, whose other name was Mark, where many were gathered together and were praying. Remarkably, by this time, the church in Jerusalem had grown so large that not one place could accommodate all the people. So God's people would often meet in the homes of wealthy believers who had large houses. And that's specifically what's going on here. They're meeting in Mary's house. Now, who's Mary? Mary is the mother of Mark, who wrote the second gospel in the New Testament. She apparently was a beloved, generous Christ follower. Peter says, I'm going there. And so he travels there and he repeatedly begins to knock on the door of the outer gate. And the Bible says in verse 13 that he's met there by a servant girl by the name of Rhoda. Her name means rose or rosebush. And so Rosie answers the door. And she recognizes Peter's voice, probably because he'd been preaching in that area. And she is astonished that he's alive, that he's present right before her, so much so that she forgets to open the door. And so Peter is once again knocking feverishly, let me in, let me in. And so Rhoda goes back to God's people and they say, no, surely this can't happen. She says, look, he's at the door. They say, no, 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 you're, you're hallucinating. No, no, better, it's probably his guardian angel, which kind of reveals a, a sect of Jewish theology that believed that every individual had their own guardian angel. So ultimately in verse 16, as Peter continues to knock, they opened the door and they were amazed. They were in complete astonishment. Not of faith of belief, but a faith of unbelief. They could not believe that God had provided the very thing they had asked for. Are we like this sometimes? I mean, when we pray and ask something by faith, do we really believe that God can do this? I mean, we earnestly petition the Lord to, to meet whatever it is that God lays on our heart, but do we do so with a sincere heart? that believes God can make the possible or the impossible possible, that God can do abundantly more. Because God's people in Acts 12, they were amazed that God actually had the audacity to answer their prayers. Can we praise God just for a minute? That by his grace, he answers fervent but faithless prayers. It is the faithful prayers of the righteous that availeth much, but God by his grace also answers faithless prayers as well. He's a kind, tender-hearted, graceful, 
came. And even when you and I are in this process of, Lord, I believe, but help my unbelief, God is gracious to answer our prayers in accordance with his will. In fact, the Bible says that Jesus stands at the right hand of the Father and intercedes for us. That the Holy Spirit directs our prayers to him in alignment to his great purposes as our faith continues to become sight. You see, the prayers of God's people were earnest. And the prayers of God's people were impactful. In fact, it was Thomas Watson, the great Puritan pastor, who said of this text, the angel fetched Peter out of prison, but it was prayer that fetched the angel. You be encouraged. God hears. God desires to answer the request that he's placed on your heart. So you stay focused on him. You stay expectant of him. And you watch how God actively and lovingly shows up in your life. And so Peter, miraculously, he tells this church in verse 17 of of what God has done. And then judgment comes in verse 18. In fact, the Bible says the next day that Herod finds out that Peter has escaped in verse 18 and sentences to death these soldiers who were guarding him in verse 19. You see, there would be a death after Passover in this text, but it wasn't Peter, it would be these guards. And it would also be Herod himself in verse 23. You see, Herod, Agrippa, he didn't love the Lord. He loved himself. He loved his kingship. He loved to be in charge and to use the people as a means for his own glory. And so the Bible says in verses 20 through 22 that he, that he resides to the region of Tyre and Sidon. He goes there to recline and to rest among the people who are dependent upon his kingship for food in the midst of this great famine. And Herod, he begins to arrogantly don the robes of his kingship. In fact, according to the historian Josephus, he wore a silver robe in verse 21. And he stands before these people in this garb and he begins to address them as a king. And in verse 22, the Bible says, they stood in awe of his words because they were like a God. But I assure you, they weren't the God. And you have here a ridiculous man, a vile man, an unrepentant man who was about to meet the true God of the universe. Who's about to know the true king. So according to verse 23, the Bible says that Herod was struck by the Lord. Historians tell us that he stood up among the people. And right in the middle of this speech, he had a violent pain in his stomach. He was carried away for he would die five days later. What was it? Was it appendicitis? Was it a ruptured cyst? Perhaps. Clearly, it was the glory of the Lord. It was the judgment of God upon Herod. You see, we were made for God's glory and not our own. God will not share his glory with anyone. You have Herod who appears to be in charge, who 
appears to be ruling. No, he found out who the true ruler was. He found out who was ultimately in control. Herod had donned this lavish robe and this extravagance. He uh, reminds me of Loki from the Marvel movies. In fact, one of my favorite phrases from the Avenger is Loki is seized by his brother Thor. Will be taken to Asgard to be judged for his sins. And ultimately, the Iron Man and Captain America go and try to capture Loki. And someone tells Captain America, hey Cap, you may want to sit this one out. These guys are from legends. They're like gods. Captain America, before he jumps out of the plane, says, no, ma'am, there's only one God. And I'm pretty sure he doesn't look like this. That is exactly what the people saw in Tyrene Sidon of Herod. Every knee will bow. Every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. And one day, all rulers all municipalities and everyone who claims power and control will stand at the feet of King Jesus and will see him as King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Acts 12 begins with James dying, Peter in prison and Herod on top of the world. Acts 12 ends with James in heaven, Peter free. Inherit on top of worms. The word of God must go forward. The gospel will get through. And that is how we end this series in verse 24. But the word of God increased and multiplied. That despite Herod's intentions and schemes, the word continues to grow. Despite these rules and rulers and famines, despite all of these obstacles, the word of God cannot fail. May that be our heart and cry as we take this gospel to the ends of the earth. May that be our reminder as we start this summer season that our God is inevitable. So may we be bold. May we have this assurance that if God is for us, who can be against us? May we live within the freedom that there is no height, no depth, no breadth or width that can separate us from the love of Christ in us. It is within this confidence that we walk out reminding ourselves, are we living for God's glory? Are we living with him as the end in mind? Secondly, when we pray, are we praying with a confident assurance that God is greater? May we acknowledge what life has already taught us. Trials are imminent. That opposition is great. But our God is greater. And may we stand firm in this unstoppable gospel as we take this liberating truth from person to person, one conversation at a time. Would you bow your head and close your eyes? Our Father God, we thank you, Lord, for today, and we thank you, God, for this reminder. Father, we thank you, Lord, for the truths of this gospel. Father, we thank you for Acts chapter 12. And Father, the reminder that though, Lord, opposition is great, trials seem to be everywhere. 
Lord, you're greater. God, we thank you, Lord, for the privilege of prayer and to lift each other up, to encourage one another as to the Lord. Father, may we do so right now in this time of response. The Father, may we take this time of response and, Lord, may we be encouraged by God's people. Who, Lord, despite this devastating news of James, they were resilient in their prayer for Peter. That, God, may we pray through whatever it is you're asking us to. Father, we thank you for this gospel that, Lord, continues to move forward. And, God, not Herod or not liberality or secularism, nothing can stop it. Father, it's this truth that, Lord, we start this summer. That, God, we step out into this new season with a renewed confidence of faith in Jesus. Our Father, may we lift these cares to you. You care for us. Father, may we have this rest and peace that was so evident in Peter. God, may this peace of Jesus be in us. Father, we ask all of these things in the mighty name of Jesus who is still saving lives. And so it is within this season right now, with every head bowed, with every eye closed, that we present this gospel, that we were made by God to live for God. But instead of living for God's glory, we've lived for our own. We've all sinned and fallen short. But though the wages of sin is death, the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus. The Father, if we repent of our sin, place our faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, King of the universe, King of our lives. Follow Him. And God, we shall be saved. If you are encouraged by today's message, be sure to subscribe to hear other messages. For more information about our church, be sure to visit us online at fbcba.org. Thanks for listening to our podcast, and always remember, you are loved.